I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And we have an exciting podcast today. This is the fourth of our Ask Jeff series, where you, our phenomenal listeners, have written in with your constitutional questions. And the first of our podcast with our spectacular new radio quality equipment here in our incredibly cool new broadcast studio at the National Constitution Center. Uh, our phenomenal web strategist, Nakandra Iannacci, is going to ask the questions as usual. Uh, we've got some great ones, so let's jump right in. Nakandra. Thanks, Jeff. Our first question comes from an immigrant from Central America. I have lived in the U.S. for 17 years. While here, I have been subjected to every possible scrutiny by the government and others. My life has been turned upside down, and for the last 34 months, I have been unemployed despite continuously applying for work at several different places, including those with low wages and that require little to no skill. Some local government agencies have been blocking my ability to find employment, and I have also been subject to violence and neglect from the ones who are supposed to serve and protect me. Do I have any rights? The question of immigration and the Constitution is an incredibly important topic, and of course it's at the centerpiece of our constitutional debates today. In the hearings about whether or not Loretta Lynch should be confirmed as Attorney General, Republican senators questioned her about whether she agreed with President Obama's executive orders about immigration. She emphasized that the Office of Legal Counsel had blessed parts of the proposal to delay the deportation of immigrants and had questioned others, and witnesses uh, disagreed with her about that. I want to begin to answer this great question by emphasizing an observation that Justice William Rehnquist made in a case called Sugarman in 1973. He said that the Supreme Court, in holding in a series of cases that a citizen alien classification is suspect in the eyes of our Constitution, fails to mention, let alone rationalize, the fact that the Constitution itself recognizes an inherent difference between citizens and aliens. That distinction is constitutionally important in no less than 11 instances in a political document noted for its brevity. So in other words, Rehnquist is saying that citizenship matters. He says the Constitution mentions citizenship 11 times, and his observation is supported by the history of the 14th Amendment and the centrality of citizenship in the years leading up to the Civil War. So the comedy clause of the Constitution, which is Article 4, says that when citizens of one state go into another state, they can't be denied basic rights like the right to make and enforce contract or sue and be sued. If I live in Pennsylvania and I go to Delaware, I'm allowed to make contracts in Delaware. But what I can't do is vote in Delaware elections or vote on Delaware juries. Those are political rights, not civil rights. And the framers believed that the comedy clause of Article 4 only covered civil rights, which were uniform from state to state. Then we get to the 14th Amendment, passed after the Civil War to overturn the infamous Dred Scott decision, and it begins by mentioning citizenship. So I think I can barely get through it by memory, but I'm going to 
just scroll my phenomenal new edition of the NCC Pocket Constitution, which please write in for so you can read the thrilling introductory essay by David Rubenstein and me about the relationship between the Constitution, the Declaration, and the Bill of Rights. And I found the 14th Amendment, and I see in the first sentence, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. That's designed to overturn the part of the Dred Scott decision that says that free African Americans born in the United States can't be citizens. But then the amendment goes on to say, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. So note that really clear distinction between privileges or immunities, which go to citizens, and basic rights like due process and equal protection, which go to all persons, citizens, and aliens alike. That raises the central question, what are the privileges or immunities of citizens that can be denied to aliens? And there is a series of uh, cases uh, saying that what those rights are, one of the most important first decisions on the rights of immigrants was called the Chinese exclusion cases in the late 19th century. The Supreme Court confirmed Congress's power to turn away aliens at the border and decide who is an American citizen, and that came from Congress's ability to make all laws necessary and proper under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. So the federal government has the right to turn away aliens at the border. It even had the right to discriminate among aliens and to allow in certain kinds of aliens, but not others. There was great nativism in the late 19th century, and the great Justice Harlan, who's a hero for his dissent in Plessy versus per Ferguson, which upheld railroad segregation, also traveled around the West Coast giving nativist speeches about the peril posed by Asian immigrants, and he supported uh, Congress's decision to draw racial classifications and who could come into the country. So it's not a pretty story when you look at the kinds of distinctions that were drawn among aliens at the border. Once an alien's actually on American soil, what are their rights? Here there's more protection. Uh, that was a legal principle established in an 1893 case called Fang Yu Ting. Uh, but there's a dispute about um, what rights those are. If you look closely at the Constitution, uh, some rights uh, at the moment today are given only to citizens, like the right to vote. We'll talk more about the history of that later. There, there was a period when some states granted aliens the right to vote, but that ended in the 1920s, and at the moment, only citizens can vote. Um, there are other rights that the Supreme Court says are uh, distinctive to citizenship uh, and can be reserved to citizens, uh, like the right to hold certain municipal, municipal uh, offices that are especially tied to civic participation. Um, other rights are conferred on person. Due process of law, is a right for persons and equal protection of the law. Uh, and then the question of how broadly states can distinguish among citizens and aliens when it comes to public benefits, such as the right to go to public school or the right to receive welfare is contested, but broadly the court has held that citizens may receive certain positive rights that are denied to aliens. The questioner importantly asked, what about employment? We know the Constitution doesn't guarantee employment, and if you're unable to find work, there's little legal resource open to you. But if an employer refuses to hire or decides to fire you based on national origin, that would be breaking anti-discrimination laws. So there is this countervailing history in uh, recent uh, 
constitutional law, which says that classifications based on national origin are inherently suspect. That was back to, from the Graham case that Justice Rehnquist was objecting to um, early, earlier. And that says that those classifications based on national origin are closely scrutinized by the courts. For undocumented immigrants who are living under the radar, it's less clear cut um, what the rights are. Uh, but where the Constitution specifically refers to persons rather, rather than citizens, they may be uh, protected. And the court has held that the Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures in the home, although it does not apply to searches conducted by American officials of non-American citizens abroad, that was the Verdugo-Urquido case, does apply to searches on American soil. So illegal immigrants do have protection against Fourth Amendment searches of their home. That despite the fact that Akhil Amar, our great National Constitution Center friend and scholar, insists that the word people in the original Bill of Rights was specifically designed to refer to citizens. The people referred to citizens and not to aliens. In the War on Terror, there are lots of disputes about the rights of aliens. The Supreme Court examined the case of the rights of non-American Guantanamo detainees in the Boumediene case in 2008. And even though the detainees were not American, were technically held outside the US, the court said that they had a right to bring habeas corpus suits. So non-citizens may have the right to bring the case in American courts to enforce fundamental rights. Very serious wrongs like genocide, slavery, or torture are actionable under the Alien Tort Statute. There are protections and special visas for aliens who've suffered violence, kidnapping, and human trafficking. Um, there are recent developments in this area of law. Uh, last year, President Obama announced sweeping reforms to immigration law and unable to push his proposals through Congress, the president used his executive power and deferred the deportation of five million undocumented workers, giving them the right to work. As I mentioned, that executive order is contested. The president's attorney general designate, as well as his office of legal counsel, say it's within the president's prosecutorial discretion to decide whom and when to deport. Uh, the counter is that this uh, violates the clear intent of Congress. So to sum up, I think there are two countervailing trends in American constitutional law. There's one, call it the citizenship focus trend, because that's what it is, which, like Justice Rehnquist, emphasizes citizenship matters. Uh, citizens do have certain basic privileges or immunities that can be denied to aliens, and this distinguishes up from Europe. This distinguishes us from Europe, which is more skeptical of the line between citizens and aliens. The countervailing trend, call it the universalistic uh, trend, is more European. It derives from that Graham and Richardson case from the 1970s. It said that classifications based on national origins are always suspect and that uh, any attempt to distinguish between citizens and aliens when it comes to fundamental rights should be treated with suspicion. The, that's the constitutional framework. Uh, for better or for worse, I think that uh, the US uh, as a political and cultural matter has historically treated the distinction as important, has imposed all sorts of constitutional disabilities on aliens that are not imposed on citizens, and therefore, um, in the US, as a constitutional matter, citizenship matters. We have a related question about voting. Is voting a privilege or a right that can only be revoked once you commit a crime, et cetera? It's a great question, and it does pick up on the earlier question about citizenship. 
And at this moment in history, as I mentioned, you do have to be a citizen to vote. Uh, there's no state that grants aliens, even legal permanent resident aliens, the right to vote. But that was not always the case. Over the course of American history, over 40 states have at some point allowed aliens to vote. There was an 1874 case called Minor and Happersat, uh, which noted, quote, citizenship has not in all cases been made a condition precedent to the enjoyment of the right of suffrage. Thus, in Missouri, persons of foreign birth who have declared their intention to become citizens of the U.S. may, under certain circumstances, vote. Uh, there was sort of a high watermark of non-citizen voting around the turn of the century when about half of the states had some alien voting. But by uh, 1926, uh, the trend had changed, and Arkansas was the last state to ban alien voting in uh, 1926. Uh, so that suggests, that's a kind of helpful framework for the question, because it suggests that the right to vote in this sense is not um, fundamental, at least uh, it's not fundamental the way the First Amendment is fundamental. Uh, First Amendment rights apply to all people, citizens and aliens alike, because of the idea that it's important for we, the people of the United States, to hear a broad range of debate. Therefore, we have to extend that right to citizens as well as aliens. And my right to speak is the same in Delaware as it is in Pennsylvania or in Virginia or Maryland. But the right to vote is different. As the comedy clause of Article 4 suggests, I'm a resident of uh, Pennsylvania. I can't just walk into a Delaware poll and demand to vote. Um, there's also a big difference about the way that states have treated who gets the right to vote. Uh, take a question like felon disenfranchisement. Many states at the moment um, limit or permanently remove voting rights for citizens with current or former felony convictions. These laws keep about 6 million voters away from the ballot box, and some people say that this is uh, discriminatory um, and uh, should be changed. So how is this possible? On the one hand, we have a series of Supreme Court decisions, again, largely from the 1960s, talking about the right to vote as a fundamental right and saying that restrictions on it have to be strictly scrutinized. On the other hand, nothing in the Constitution explicitly guarantees the right to vote. And in a section that, in one, that, uh, Sandy Levinson, the University of Texas law professor once did a book called Constitutional Stupidities, and he asked a bunch of law professors to identify what they thought the, the stupidest or worst provision of the Constitution was. And I, point, I, I picked Article 1, Section 4, which says that the times, places, and manners of holding elections shall be prescribed by the states with Congress having only an oversight role. It was that decision and the decision not to amend that at the time of the Civil War that allows um, all of our current vexations about voting rights from disputes about majority-minority voting districts to questions about voter ID laws, um, if the right to vote were considered a fundamental uh, right that had to be uniform from state to state, like the right to free speech, then many of these disputes would go out of the way. Uh, so although the Constitution mentions the right to vote several times, uh, in fact, more often than any other right, including the 14th Amendment, uh, which here, just to confirm the fact that the 14th Amendment was not intended to confer the right to vote, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, I really should have bookmarked this because I keep having to turn to it. I, I began by reading from Section 1, but look what Section 2 says. 
it mentions um, in an in a important passage that the framers of the 14th Amendment thought was even more important than Section 1. It says that when the right to vote in any election is denied to any of the male inhabitants of a state, the basis of representation shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall be to the whole number of male citizens, 21 years of age. What was the point of this citizens? Basically, the Reconstruction Republicans were afraid that the southern states would deny the right to vote to the freedmen, but would count them for purposes of apportionment and therefore would get a Democratic majority in Congress. So Section 2 doesn't say you can't do that, southern states. It says if you do that, you're going to suffer a reduction in apportionment. This seems to be an explicit acknowledgment of the idea that the 14th Amendment wasn't intended to convey the right to vote to African Americans. It took the 15th Amendment, uh, ratified in 1870, to say the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the U.S., on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section 2 of the 14th is also significant because it it's the only part of the Constitution that contains the word male that is gender-based. And women were absolutely upset. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the heroic women at uh, Seneca Falls said that this introduced a term of caste in the US Constitution and seemed to acknowledge that women uh, could not uh, vote. It took, of course, the 19th Amendment uh, ratified in uh, 1920, whose 100th anniversary we're going to celebrate here at the Constitution Center um, in just a few years to grant women the right to vote on the basis uh, of, of and to prohibit gender discrimination. Then there's the 24th Amendment, which has no poll tax, the 26th Amendment, no discrimination by age. So there have been a bunch of calls to pass a constitutional amendment explicitly affirming voting as a fundamental right, but none have been successful so far. So all that is to say that just as the Constitution distinguishes crisply between citizens and non-citizens, so it grants the states plenary power to define the right to vote. It does not give that right to um, Congress in the first instance. And therefore, over the course of American history, uh, including uh, to today, states have imposed all sorts of disabilities on different classes of voters, and the right to vote in the U.S. is something of a uh, crazy quilt rather than a, a uniform uh, protection. Now let's turn to the First Amendment. I have a question about the IRS, everyone's favorite topic. If religions are not taxed, and if the IRS or some other governmental agency must determine for purposes of taxation or that tax-exempt status, what is or is not a real religion, how does that determination not violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? The question of what is a real religion is one that the Supreme Court is extremely reluctant to allow government to engage. We know that from the uh, important Hobby Lobby decision last summer, where in a five to four ruling, the court upheld the religious liberty of Christian employers who were refusing to pay for employees to have insurance for contraception. One of the main bases for that ruling was that it was important for judges and government officials not to evaluate the sincerity of religious beliefs if an employer said, I believe in good conscience that I can't pay for this insurance. The Supreme Court wanted to keep government out of the business of evaluating that claim. 
So that landmark ruling could open the door to other religious freedom claims, uh, a whole bunch of cases that we've discussed on these podcasts, including the claim of a photographer uh, that she had a religious objection to photographing gay weddings. Um, and and if that, the court decided not to take that case, but the lower courts refused to evaluate the sincerity of her religious belief. Uh, so the government is not allowed to be in the business of evaluating sincerity. But the government is permitted to regulate the actions of religious group if there's a compelling interest at stake. For example, when organizations are discriminating on the basis of race, they lose their tax break irrespective of the underlying religious belief. Now, that speech conduct distinction can be sort of tricky, and the question of why discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is different than the basis of discrimination on the basis of race is contested. And if the Supreme Court in the marriage equality cases recognizes a broad right of marriage equality, perhaps some of those employment cases will be revisited. But let's back up for a moment and talk about the details of how religious organizations are granted tax exemptions. Churches and other nonprofits like educational, scientific, uh, sporting groups can register as charitable 501c3 organizations under the Internal Revenue Code. Um, so which groups fall under that 501c3 exemption? For a church to qualify, it has to be organized and operated exclusively for the advancement of religion. If it can show that, it can qualify for a tax exemption. Uh, this special tax treatment was upheld by the Supreme Court back in the 70s in a case called Waltz versus Tax Commission of the City of New York. So how does the IRS decide who benefits from this religious exemption? First, the IRS can't reject an application because it thinks a group's religious doctrines or beliefs are not valid. The Supreme Court has said the government has a duty to, quote, make room for as wide a variety of beliefs and creeds as the spiritual needs of man deem necessary inspiring and capacious sentiment. Well, that sounds broad, but what does the law actually say about what is and what isn't classified as religion? The Supreme Court said it includes traditionally religious beliefs like Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, uh, which acknowledge a supreme being, but the courts also recognize less conventional beliefs where a person or group has a, quote, sincere and meaningful belief in something other than a traditional God. Uh, in practice, even if a group satisfies this test, it doesn't necessarily mean it gets a religious tax exemption. IRS officials can challenge a group's religious status if they reasonably believe that the organization is being deceitful about its true purposes, um, and this is supposed to protect religious groups from undue government interference. Some scholars have said the best test of an establishment clause uh, claim is that you want to minimize the degree to which a government encourages or discourages religious belief and the degree to which it's entangled in evaluating the sincerity of religious belief. Well, so shouldn't this special protection, the IRS protection, violate the Establishment Clause? No, it doesn't, because on that topic, the Supreme Court has said the Establishment Clause does not tolerate either governmentally established religion or governmental interference with religion. The court has added that short of those expressly prescribed governmental acts, there's room for play in the joints, and that potentially gives government wide latitude in how they can treat religious organizations. That means giving groups a tax break doesn't violate the Constitution. The key takeaway from all this, it's not up for the IRS to decide what is or what isn't a real religion, um, and that's a call that the judiciary wants to keep government out of as much as possible. What if we wanted to change the Constitution? Uh, one listener asks, 
if we, the people, have an idea that we would like to submit to be considered as an amendment, who would we send it to? How does that work? Well, we can uh, first find out how it works by looking at the Constitution itself, and Article 5 is the place to start. And I'm coming away uh, and finding the text here with remarkable alacrity. Here it is. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. So that's the first way of uh, proposing things. Congress, when, when two-thirds of both houses uh, propose an amendment. Or on the application of the legislature of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments. That's the second proposal meant, uh, method. Uh, legislatures of two-thirds of the states call for a convention. Now, about what about ratification? Once again, there are two methods, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution. When ratified by legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, that's the first ratification method, or, here's the second, by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. So we had two methods of proposal and two methods of ratification. Just to recap proposal, two-thirds of both houses or Three, uh, two-thirds of the state legislatures call for convention, ratification, legislatures of three-fourths of the states, or conventions in three-fourths of the states. In practice, the national convention approach uh, is never used. We haven't had a national convention since the original one, which uh, both proposed uh, a constitution in uh, 1787 and, and then called uh, conventions to, uh, in each of the states to ratify. And today, an amendment is most likely to begin in Congress. So the best way to propose an amendment is by calling your senators or your representatives. And then if you want one of those amendments that's uh, to be ratified, it would be great if you could persuade your state legislature because three quarters of those have to agree. There are proponents of the second men, uh, method of basically proposal by constitutional convention, including Larry Lessig at Harvard Law School and Cheikh Ugar of the Young Turks, both of whom have appeared on our We the People podcasts um, and talked about conventions. They've focused their efforts in organizing to build momentum for a convention or even specific changes like a balanced budget amendment or an amendment overturning the Supreme Court Citizens United decision. In 1911, the U.S. did come close to holding a convention to establish the direct election of senators, but the effort fell one state short, which spurred the Congress to take the lead and ultimately put forward the 17th Amendment. But that's not all. I've just talked about the constitutional methods for amending the Constitution. There are some scholars, like my dear teacher and uh, National Constitution Center friend, Akhil Amar, who argue that Article 5 is not the only way to amend the Constitution. It gives examples of how we the people can express their sovereign belief uh, and desire to alter and abolish their government, but not the only methods. So Akhil Amar's argument comes from the natural law-based theory that the framers of the Constitution adopted. And if you pick up your incredibly stylish new National Constitution Center pocket constitution, start with the Declaration of Independence, which in its famous second paragraph, after declaring the unalienable rights that all men are endowed by their creator with, forgive that grammar, goes on to say, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, 
it is the right of the people to alter and abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its power as such forms as to them shall be seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So there's no question the framers believe that the right to alter and abolish government was an unalienable natural right. That meant that in the state of nature, before civil society or government is formed, all of us have certain unalienable rights, like the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience, um, and that when, you, when we move from the state of nature to civil society, we construct a government to protect those unalienable rights rather than to threaten them. And if government threatens those rights, basically violating the terms of the social contract, we have not only the right but the duty to alter and abolish the government so it does what it's supposed to do and protects rather than threatening our unalienable rights. So according to this reading, the right to alter and abolish government, which I can't alienate to government even if I want to because it's inherent in um, protecting my God-given um, rights rather than threatening them, that right can be exercised in several ways. It can be exercised by a revolution like the American Revolution. Uh, it can be exercised in extra-legal constitutional change. Remember, both the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution itself were proposed and ratified according to procedures that violated the legal documents then in use. The Articles of Confederation required um, uh, unanimous consent for amendment. The Constitution, however, was ratified by fewer states. Uh, that illegality, ac according to Akhil Amar and others, suggests that if you have really good evidence that we the people of the United States truly and sincerely are exercising their unalienable right to alter and abolish government, then they can adopt procedures that violate the existing legal conventions. That would mean, according to Amar, that a majority vote of we the people of the United States, maybe if it was conducted over a period of time, maybe several votes to prove that the people had time to think about it and were really sincere, might validly ratify an amendment even if it didn't conform to the Article 5 amendment procedures. Now, just descriptively, I'll say that this is a minority view, um, and I would not, if you were trying to convince the Supreme Court to recognize an amendment as valid, point to uh, a, 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 an online poll as example of the people's uh, sovereign will, but it's a really provocative argument, and it does remind us how central the right of revolution, the right to change our government, was to the framers, how deeply they believed that it was an unalienable right and how important they thought constitutional change was. Now, the final thing to say maybe is that there's a lot of disagreement about how easy the Constitution should be to change. Uh, we have uh, Thomas Jefferson who talked about the need to uh, change constitutions in every generation. Um, we have others uh, like uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton um, who uh, believe that uh, change should be more difficult, uh, but the idea of constitutional change is central to popular sovereignty, and the fact that it seems remote that amendments will actually pass in our current legal climate is uh, might have disappointed the framers since they did believe that we the people should be centrally involved in discussions about what the Constitution means and how to change it. There is now an effort in Washington state to form a separate state within its borders named after James Madison. 
Does the Constitution allow for this? And has it happened before? Well, first of all, if it happens, I would totally move to Madison State. I think really <laughs> it would be great. And we could have a National Constitution Center satellite office and most importantly, a broadcast studio. And we could say broadcasting now from the state of Madison. I'll move there right away. We'll, yes. we'll, we'll both go. Yeah. It'll be a beautiful uh, satellite. <laughs> um, so what does the Constitution say? Article 4, Section 3 establishes a process for admitting new states, including ones that are split off from existing states. It says, new states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress. Wow, that's interesting. And that's just central to the framers' concern about what they called imperium in imperio, a state within a state. That was the real concern in debates about the ratification of the Constitution. How could you balance state sovereignty and national sovereignty and create a situation where uh, both the people of each state and the people of the United States as a whole were sovereign. This debate was so central, it's probably the most important constitutional debate at the time of the framing. James Wilson, the architect of popular sovereignty, my favorite framer because he was really the philosopher of the convention, insisted that we the people of the United States as a whole were sovereign, not we the people of each individual state. Lincoln invoked Wilson's arguments in insisting that secession was unconstitutional during the Civil War because you'd need the consent of a majority of we the people of all the states, not of each separate state to secede. Uh, others, uh, proponents of state sovereignty, vigorously denied this, and it took the Civil War, Antietam, the bloodiest battle in American history, and finally the uh, Reconstruction Amendments to settle the question and to establish we the people of the United States as sovereign. But the fact that um, the framers, even at the time of the convention, were concerned about states splitting out um, uh, or forming splinter organizations without the consent of Congress emphasizes their belief that even in the 1780s, uh, there had to be some national check over splinter groups within states. Since Congress has the final stay on statehood issues, the question becomes a political one as well as a constitutional one. As we've seen in the cases of Puerto Rico and D.C. possibly seeking statehood, the addition of one new state to the union would create two new senators and at least uh, one new representative that could impact the balance of power in the legislature, which uh, makes it a political hot potato. There are precedents for adding new states from land under the jurisdiction of another state. There have been two states formed since 1789 by a legally approved secession process from an existing state. In 1820, Maine was created as a state independent of Massachusetts as part of the Missouri Compromise. Uh, and in 1863, West Virginia became a state during the very bitter divisions of the Civil War. After the Wheeling Convention in 1861, 50 counties of Virginia decided to break away and form their own state under the Union government, and that state became West Virginia. The Supreme Court formally acknowledged West Virginia statehood in 1871 in its decision in Virginia versus West Virginia. Wow, what a great case uh, that is. Um, I don't know, New York versus Western New York, or there are just all sorts of excellent secession movements we can imagine. Tennessee, and especially in Pennsylvania, which is a fascinating amalgam of, of different, uh, different groups. Tennessee also joined the Union in, eight, in 1796, which, and it was formerly part of North Carolina and then part of the Southwest Territory. The last new state to be admitted to the Union was Hawaii in 1959, and it joined the Union in connection with Alaska. 
and preserve the political balance in Congress that took 13 years of negotiation to achieve. During the Reconstruction period that followed the Civil War, the Supreme Court addressed the question of secession, and in Texas versus White, the court said that Texas had, quote, entered into an indissoluble relation with the United States that could only be terminated by revolution or consent of the states. So uh, best of luck to the prospective citizens of uh, Madison, uh, Western Washington, but realize, guys, you're going to have to convince Congress to go along with you. Turning now to the Bill of Rights, in their time, did the framers think that any one of those 10 amendments were more important than the others? Was the First Amendment first, for example? It was not. And you can see that for yourself by visiting the National Constitution Center and our new completely spectacular exhibit, Constituting Liberty from the Declaration to the Bill of Rights. So listeners, if I, have, if, if I haven't told you this before, you've got to come check us out in Philadelphia or online because on December 15th, Bill of Rights Day, we open this beautiful new gallery displaying one of the 12 surviving copies of the Bill of Rights. George Washington sent 14 copies out to the 13 states and the federal government on October 2nd, uh, 1789, uh, 226 years ago. And 12 of those copies survive, and the National Constitution Center is now displaying one of those copies along with rare copies of the Declaration and the Constitution. And if you look at the original copy of the Bill of Rights, you'll see that it doesn't contain 10 amendments, but 12. The First Amendment is not our beloved First Amendment protecting free speech. Instead, it's an amendment that says that there has to be, after a certain period of time, one representative in Congress for every 40,000 inhabitants. If that amendment had passed, there would be 4,000 people in Congress today as opposed to 530 somewhat. Oi, um, yeah, exactly. That's the best constitutional <laughs> judgment. You think we got problems uh, with consensus now? Imagine what that would have looked like. Um, the Second Amendment, which was also not ratified originally, says that Congress can't raise its salary without an intervening election. That became the 27th Amendment when it was finally ratified in 1992. So our First Amendment, the one that we always say is the most important because it's first, was actually the Third Amendment as you'll see on the original Bill of Rights. This suggests at the very least that the First Amendment, which protected a natural right of religious conscience and speech that was recognized in most of the state bills of rights, wasn't considered the most important by the framers. They were more concerned about practical questions of politics and apportionment. These are politicians who are worried about exactly whether they're going to keep their majorities. They're thinking about structures of government rather than about natural rights. You can further explore this incredible question, and I want you to do this right after listening to this podcast. Go to the Constitution Center website, constitutioncenter.org, and check out our phenomenal new interactive, which we've developed along with Google and with Constitute, the leading collector of global constitutions. And on this interactive, you can do two things. You can click on any provision of the Bill of Rights and see its historical antecedents, so you can see for example, the Second Amendment, drawing on the revolutionary state constitutions, see that most of those constitutions saw the Second Amendment as a collective right to protect state militias against federal standing armies, but that Pennsylvania, in its minority statement, did view the right to bear arms as an individual right uh, and a right of self-defense and a right of uh, hunting game. And you can make up your own minds about how to balance that conflicting evidence. 
You can also, on that first interactive, see the four amendments that Madison proposed but were not adopted. This is so interesting to look at the text. Um, two of them are the ones, uh, one of the ones is the one I've discussed, the one about uh, apportionment. Another one is a kind of natural rights declaration that all people have certain unalienable rights and there's a right to alter and abolish government when it threatens them. It's a kind of uh, Jeffersonian statement about the basis of uh, American government and its purpose in protecting natural rights. Um, there's a kind of, uh, you could almost call it a Tea Party amendment that Madison proposed that didn't pass, which says that the legislative branch can't exercise judicial powers, the judicial can't exercise executive and so forth, basically that each branch has to keep to its own domain. You could invoke that amendment to question the modern administrative state, as some libertarians have. But finally, there was the amendment that Madison considered the most important in the entire bunch. He, this to him was the amendment that should have passed but didn't. It said that no state shall abridge the rights of conscience and um, trial by uh, jury and uh, deprivations without due process of law. So Madison thought that there are certain rights, most importantly the natural rights of conscience, so fundamental that neither the states nor the federal government should be allowed to abridge them. That amendment didn't pass. It took the 14th Amendment, passed after the Civil War, to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states and to achieve what Madison thought was should have been achieved initially and ensure that there are certain rights that both the states and the federal government could not infringe. But that's not all you can do on the interactive. I just have to briefly put in this plug for the second part of it, which you can click on any provision of the Bill of Rights and see the spread of that liberty across the globe. So click on the American Fourth Amendment, Prohibition Against Unreasonable Searches and Seizures, see all the countries that have versions of uh, search and seizure restrictions, click on Japan and see that General MacArthur, when he drafted the Japanese Constitution, cut and paste the American Fourth Amendment and that the words are almost exactly the same. So using that interactive, you can say you can see which rights countries around the globe consider most important and how influenced or not influenced they were by the American uh, Bill of Rights. So uh, lots of ways to study which amendments the framers considered most important Best way to come to the Constitution Center, but equally good way, go to our website, click on Rights Interactive, and just play with it. You can learn so much by comparing the language in the revolutionary state constitutions with the Bill of Rights, with the unratified amendments, and then the spread of those liberties across the globe. We received, uh, as usual, we received a lot more questions than we have time for, but uh, I wanted to end on a a note that I know you will love. This week marks the 99th anniversary of Louis Brandeis's nomination to the Supreme Court. And uh, I'm wondering if you can speak to his legacy and, and why we should re remember this anniversary. Thank you so much for this wonderful <laughs> softball <laughs> question. As uh, uh, you, you know, whenever I have a hard constitutional question, I, I love to ask that immortal uh, uh, query. WWBD, what would Brandeis do? Brandeis is my inspiration. He was the greatest judicial philosopher of the 20th century. He was the most important enemy of uh, the curse of bigness, uh, and he both anticipated the crash of 1929 and would have explained the crash of 2007. Uh, he opposed bigness in government as well as in the economic sphere. Uh, because he, of his belief that uh, liberty was best protected by engaged citizens deliberating with full information in small-scale laboratories of democracy. So he can teach us so much about civic engagement. 
he's also the greatest avatar of privacy in an age of changing technologies. And in his path-breaking articles on the right to privacy and his dissenting opinions in the wiretapping case from the 1920s, the Olmstead case, he insists that we have to translate the Constitution to take account of new technologies so that we protect just as much privacy in the age of uh, the wires as the framers took for granted in the 18th century. Uh, and finally, he also became the founder of the American uh, Zionist movement. Uh, at, in middle age, he didn't have much of a religious uh, upbringing, but because of his belief that in the kibbutzim of uh, what was then Palestine, people could achieve the civic engagement that he prized in 5th century Athens and also in the Jeffersonian shires that were his model for civic democracy. He became a committed Zionist and more than anyone else of his time helped ensure American uh, recognition of uh, the new state of Israel. So um, congratulations to <coughs> Louis Brandeis for this anniversary of his confirmation. This was not a pretty confirmation hearings. The, the Loretta Lynch hearings, which we saw this week, were a cakewalk compared to Brandeis's. He didn't appear before the Senate. That was then the convention. But uh, gosh, he assembled an incredible array of enemies in the old New Republic offices. Uh, and I say this with a uh, wistful sense of regret at the, the recent implosion of the New Republic, but there was a beautiful chart in the editor's office of the New Republic that proposed to map out all of Brandeis's enemies during his confirmation hearing. So you saw Abbott Lawrence Lowell, the anti-Semitic president of Harvard, at the hub of this, and there were State Street bankers, and there were Lowell's law partners, and there was J.P. Morgan and his ilk. Morgan was Brandeis's great enemy, um, as well as the other uh, corporate interests that Brandeis had inflamed. Um, and this chart was proposed to the uh, owner of the New Republic, uh, Willard Strait, and he basically killed it because he had worked for J.P. Morgan before his marriage to Dorothy Strait, the heiress who funded the New Republic. So um, you can see it all, though, uh, in this uh, chart. My gosh, I wonder where it is now, and I hope it's well preserved. But um, as Brandeis gave some very uh, uh, coy and self-possessed references to the controversy in his letters to his brother, Alfred. You know, he said, today the Senate is meeting and we've got the right enemies, basically, and we will prevail. So he didn't comment publicly on the anti-Semitism or on the corporate opposition to him. But with Wilson's support, he was indeed confirmed and went on to serve as, I think, the greatest Supreme Court justice of the 20th century. Happy confirmation, Louis Brandeis. And I gather tomorrow is FDR's birthday, so happy prospective birthday, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's a great way to end. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for the fourth of our series, Ask Jeff. I hope this has been fun and interesting. Please keep your questions coming. We'll do another one in just a few months. And of course, uh, next week, please join us for the latest of our regularly scheduled We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.